kind of magic that would help them understand. In our day, a good many people have looked to the heavens, to astrology or maybe to crystals or something else, hoping to find answers. But of course, religion has always played a big piece in that. And for Christians... Folks like us who know God not as a distant rule maker and magician and alchemist, but as a personal, loving God. That's the only place where we can turn if we really want to ask this question. And we see it, we said last week, when it's revealed to us in not only the message, but in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If we want to know God, there's only one place we're going to see as much of God as God has ever revealed. And that's in Jesus. And so that is the person to whom we look. Last Sunday we tried to talk about making sense out of tragedy and we talked about some very tentative answers. And I recognize just how tentative those answers are. We said that first, bad things not only happen to good people, they happen to all people, just because we're human. We are finite creatures. We also said that sometimes we suffer because of the sins of other people, because of the actions of somebody else. Third thing we said was that if we stand up to evil, we can expect to suffer consequences for that. And the third thing, I'm sorry, the final thing we said was that there is the possibility that something positive can come out of our suffering, often in ways we don't understand. Now, this morning I want to approach the question a little differently, and I want us to look at what I'm going to call three false solutions because they're the ones we see out there all around us, and I dare say some of us have occasionally even used them a little bit. But if we are going to follow Jesus Christ, if we are going to follow the loving God who creates the universe as a place where we can become more fully like Him, then these false solutions are not going to work for us. Now, the problem with false solutions is, as is true in everything that smacks of heresy, and I'm going to use that word today, is that it always contains a little bit of truth. If it didn't, nobody would ever listen to it. If it were obviously stupid, you'd say, well, I don't believe that. But the problem is, it does contain just a little truth, and it is easily able to trick us. And so the first false solution that I want us to look at is this idea that all suffering comes from God. All suffering comes from God. Famous British clergyman tells of going to see the mother after she had received word that her son had been killed in the war and her first words are God took my son how many times have we said things like that but this clergyman said no 
Not in the way you mean it, God didn't. To say that God took your boy is only half the truth. God took him only after the evil of mankind organized in warfare killed him. To say that that was God's will, God's intention, is a lie. Yes. To say that it's God's will for all these evil things to happen is a lie. But like most of you, I've heard a lot of good folks trying to be faithful who would say in the face of some sort of a tragedy, oh, it must be God's will. But it's not God's intentional will that any kind of tragedy should be inflicted on His children. It is God's will that when suffering comes, as it always does, that we should meet it with His power and triumph over it. But God is not the author of suffering. Now the element of truth in this solution is pretty obvious. God certainly created the world in a way that there is the possibility that bad things can happen. We talked about that a little bit last week. But to hold, as some people do, that God is the direct and immediate cause of suffering, <coughs> excuse me, is directly opposed to the very character of God as revealed in Jesus. Jesus was the most loving, caring person who ever lived. He did not inflict harm on anybody. And if you survey the New Testament, even in a limited fashion, it will force you to reject this idea that all suffering comes from God. It simply does not do justice to God as He's revealed Himself to us in Jesus. But there is a final concept which we have to deal with at this point that grows out of this false solution. And you see it expressed in the text this morning with Jesus in the garden begging that He can escape from the cross. Now I just said, suffering is not God's perfect will. But here in the garden and in other places we see that sometimes our suffering can grow out of following God's will. And the cross is exactly that kind of situation. From the garden, Jesus goes forth to suffer and die in obedience to the will of God. Now, Jesus didn't have to do that. We are told throughout the New Testament that Jesus made this as a conscious choice. He could have walked away. God did not make him do it. God did not force this issue. And you can even say that it is not God's perfect will that it had to come to this. But it was God's will that Jesus become a Savior. And in a world like ours, the only way for Him to do that was to be obedient even if it took him to a cross. There may be times when suffering comes 
because we have been obedient to God's will. God doesn't call it or cause it. But sometimes being obedient is more important than all the suffering that comes our way. So, does God cause suffering? No. Not in the sense that it's His perfect will. But sometimes, sometimes when we're obedient, suffering comes. There's a second false solution that I want to hold up to you. And that's the solution that has been offered in more modern times. And it is that suffering is because God is limited. God does not have the ability to stop suffering. Back 30 years ago or so, there was a very popular book written by a guy named Harold Kushner. And it was entitled, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. And it was a pretty good book. I'd suggest you read it sometime. However, after exploring all the alternatives, Rabbi Kushner states that his position is, is that suffering is because God is limited. In writing about the Holocaust in the Second World War, he says, where was God when all this was going on? Why didn't He interfere to stop it? Why didn't God strike Hitler dead in 39? Or spell and spare millions of lives in untold suffering? Why didn't God send an earthquake to demolish the gas chambers? Where was God? And then He says, I believe that God was with the victims, not with the murderers but that He does not control man's choosing between good and evil. I have to believe that the tears and the prayers of the victims arouse God's compassion. But having given man freedom to choose, including the freedom to hurt one's neighbor, there was nothing God could do to prevent it. The most troubling thing about Rabbi Kushner's belief is that he's almost right. I absolutely agree with him that God is with the victims, not the murderers. I have to believe with him that God is in the tears and the prayers of the victims and it arouses God's compassion. But I will never be convinced that God is powerless to do something. You see, that's the problem. How in the face of sin and suffering can we believe in a loving and a sovereign God? Our logic seems to insist upon one or the other, but not both. Either God does not really care, and therefore they're suffering, and we reject that idea because we've seen the love of God in Christ. But the only other logical assumption for us seems to be, well, God may love us, but God's too weak to do anything about it. And neither of those is acceptable. 
We as Christians simply cannot look at it that way. It is not true to what we believe. Thankfully, the New Testament provides another way to see it. And the greatest illustration of the love and power of God is seen in the cross, in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus himself says, greater love has no man than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. Yeah, he was talking about himself there. Or perhaps us at times. He could inspire the Apostle Paul to write, for while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. While it's difficult to die for a righteous person, God shows His love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ dies for us. Here in the cross you see the full love of God and what God is willing to undergo for us, for humanity in the face of our suffering. In the cross, God in Christ endures everything we can ever possibly hope to know about suffering and evil and insult. He goes down to the very physical depths of hell so that we won't have to. Look at the cross. And you cannot ever doubt again how much God loves humanity, but there you also see God's power. It's not power in the way we usually think about it, but it's ultimate power. For while evil and sin is allowed to kill the very Son of God, when it has done its worst, what happens? Resurrection happens. Easter morning is supposed to be a time of laughter and joy because evil and suffering and sin has lost forever. We may have to suffer in this life, but God's won that battle. That's power. God's not limited, not in His love or in His power. And Rabbi Cushman is almost right. If there is any limit at all, God has placed it upon Himself in that God does not necessarily interfere with your choices and mine. And if we make evil, wicked choices, somebody will have to pay the consequences. And sometimes when somebody else makes them, you and I have to suffer the consequences. There's a third traditional idea about suffering. And it's that all suffering is due to sin. And therefore, it's God punishing us. I bet you've heard that one, too. One of the comments that frankly made me so mad after the Aurora shooting was made by a United States congressman 
whose name, thankfully, I can't remember, who said to the media, this shooting is God's punishment because the United States is immoral. And then he listed our immorality. Now, it is really clear to me that he likes a couple of stories out of the Old Testament. But he don't know a darn thing about Jesus. That the United States is immoral? Well, that's no surprise. It's made up of human beings, folks like us. Of course it's immoral. We're all immoral. So is he, for that matter. The truth is, he's mad because not everybody wants to follow his narrow viewpoint. But I'm going to tell you, he's nobody's theologian. He knows very little about the Scriptures. And more importantly than either one of those two, how presumptuous is it for him to take the place of God and tell us what God's doing to punish somebody? How presumptuous can that be? There is a delightful and altogether profound comic strip that I don't think is being written anymore called Peanuts. And here's an episode for your edification. Linus is seen holding up a finger and announcing that he has a splinter. Aha, says Lucy. That means you're being punished for something. What have you done wrong lately? Linus insists he really hadn't done anything wrong. But Lucy says, you have a splinter in your finger, don't you? That's misfortune, isn't it? You're being punished with misfortune because you've been bad. Now Charlie Brown tries to protest, but Lucy won't listen. What do you know about it, Charlie Brown? It's a sign. It's a direct sign of punishment. Linus has done something wrong. Now he must pay by suffering misfortune. I know about these things. Yeah, her and the congressman. <laughs> and at that moment, Linus holds up his finger and he says, It's out! It just popped out! Lucy walks away dispirited. And Linus, with a smug look, says, Thus ends the theological lesson for the day. <laughs> I've heard an awful lot of people, some good folk, who in the face of tragedy make themselves miserable by assuming that God is somehow punishing them for something they've done or something they failed to do. And if the truth be known, we've all probably asked the question from time to time, what did I do for this to happen to me? What did I do to deserve this? But we have an even greater witness in our Scripture lesson. There were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus said, Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the others because they had to suffer? No, I tell you. Or what about the 18 upon whom the Tower of Siloam fell and it killed them? Do you think they were worse offenders? No. 
Here we have it on authority of Jesus himself that it is absolutely false to assume that all suffering is due to sin. doesn't work like that. Now, the truth in this falsehood is pretty straightforward. All sin does produce some level of suffering. It may not be immediate. It may not be physical. But all sin does produce some level of trouble. And it's a price we pay when we are not obedient. Be sure your sins will find you out. How many times have we said that? And it's true. But it does not absolutely follow that all suffering is due to sin. How many golfers have we got in here? I'm sorry Dave's not here. This joke's for him. Y'all know the joke about the preacher who pretends to be sick so he doesn't have to come to church on Sunday morning so he can go and play golf? You know the joke? It's a beautiful day. He goes to play. And Peter, looking at God, says, God, you're going to punish him, right? And then he tees up and hits a hole in one. And Peter says, why would you let him do that? And God says, huh, who's he going to tell? <laughs> there is punishment for all sin, although sometimes it is very creative. <laughs> Three false solutions to suffering. Suffering's real. We know it. And one of the best things we can do in the midst of suffering is to learn to laugh. Whether it's at some silly joke or whether it is laughing in the face of evil itself. Because evil has lost. God is triumphant. And whatever happens in this life, God is still God and still rules the universe. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.